From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihe Razazan. Khalil Bendib is away this week. On Monday, September 25th, Iraqi Kurds defied the regional and international pressure and voted in a historic referendum, which is seen as a path towards an independent Kurdish state. Here is Al Jazeera reporter Zeyna Khodar reporting from a polling station in Kirkuk in northern Iraq. It's a day Iraq's Kurds say they had hoped to see in their lifetime, some eager to be the first to cast their ballots. Suzanne was so excited about the referendum, she had a restless night. At 18, it's the first time she's been able to vote. I am so happy I wanted to be one of the first ones here. I only slept for three hours. This is a historic day for us. It's not the first time Idris has voted, but he too was in early. He dots his blue inked finger with pride. I have voted in presidential and parliamentarian elections before, but this is the most important one because it's about independence. I hope the new Kurdistan state will be a state for everyone. Kurds, Arabs, Assyrians, Yazidis, everyone who needs safety and wants to live in freedom. Similar scenes were being repeated around the Kurdish region. People streaming into polling stations however they could. Especially in areas where Kurdish President Masoud Barzani has a strong foothold. I'm so happy today. The vote also went ahead in Kirkuk, despite fears it could further alienate Turkmen and Arabs, nearly half of the city's population, who feel they have been marginalized by the Kurds. So this is the ballot paper. The question asked is, do you want the Kurdish region and Kurdish areas outside of the region's administration, meaning disputed territories, to become an independent state? The voter can take Bale, which means yes in Kurdish, or Nekher, which means no. Everything on the ballot is written in three other languages, Arabic, Assyrian and Turkish. The regional government sending a message that the future Kurdistan state will be inclusive. But William Benjamin is not convinced. He's an Assyrian Christian and has voted no. We didn't see the same interest in us in other political events before this referendum. It's just a way to lure the minorities. We respect their promises, but until now they've not respected our rights and they've rewritten the history of this land, excluding our part in it. The Kurdish president has said that it's time to end the failed partnership with Baghdad, a message that resonates among Kurds who hope that this is the day that they write what they consider to be a historical wrong. But by taking over the disputed territories, Barzani now faces those who feel history is repeating itself, this time against non-Kurds. This week we spend the hour speaking about this historic referendum and its aftermath with Dr. Firat Botchali, who has done extensive research on the political economy and geography of state formation in the Turkish border zones. Stay with us. In a referendum held on September 25th, the voters in Iraqi Kurdistan voted overwhelmingly in favor of independence for the Kurdistan region. The Electoral Commission said 92% of the 3.3 million people who cast their ballots supported secession. The turnout has been reported to be 72%. 
Since the vote is non-binding and will not lead automatically to independence, what is the significance of this plebiscite? Shahram Agamir spoke with Dr. Firat Bostjali, an anthropologist who has done extensive research about the political economy and geography of state formation in the Turkish border, about the significance of this plebiscite and its aftermath. First of all, we should start with saying that the talk of referendum is not new. Actually, there was a referendum held in 2005, but it was an informal referendum, and it was held in Kurdistan region, as well as the area with majority Kurdish populations. And in that referendum, 98% of participants voted for independence. So the referendum and the talk of independence has been there. And to also give a brief historical background, the Iraqi Kurdistan, the Kurdistan region, emerged as an autonomous territorial entity in 1992, following the Gulf War. And the region achieved a legal status in 2004 and 5 after the Iraqi war and after the uh, Iraqi constitution was ratified, was confirmed. Since 1992, the Iraqi Kurdish government was working, functioning on the ground, and the region itself received official recognition in 2005. But in 2005, there was also this dispute on the regions, the areas with Kurdish populations to be included in the Kurdistan region or not. The Kurdistan region right now is composed of three governors, the Hok government, uh, Erbil government, and Soleimani government. In addition to these governors, the Kurds also claimed for certain areas and certain towns and cities included Kirkuk, Hanekin, Sinjar, Mahmur, and some other smaller places to be included in Kurdistan region. And this dispute wasn't resolved during the constitutional talks in 2005. But in the constitution, there was a mechanism agreed. The Iraqi central government and Kurdish regional government agreed on a resolution process regarding these disputed areas, which was mentioned in Article 140 of Iraqi constitution. According to that article, there will be referendums to be held in these uh, areas. And based on these referendums, it will be decided whether these areas will be included in Iraqi Kurdistan or not, or the Kurdistan region or not. And these referendums were agreed to be held by 2007. And before the referendums were held, there will be certain measures to undo the Arabization process conducted by the Ba'ath uh, regime. During the Ba'ath era, in those areas, the Kurdish and Turkmen populations were forcibly displaced, and Arab populations or Arab groups were placed on these areas. This was during... It happened in different uh, times, but, but basically 70s and 80s. Yeah. These referendums haven't been held. That's actually one of the reasons that Iraqi Kurdish government has been insisting on having a referendum for independence because they argue that the constitution, the Iraqi constitution was not or has not been applied as agreed on. So they decided that they should go themselves and do the referendum by themselves. So in that way, the current referendum uh, result and the participation in the referendum is important and the referendum talk is not new. It's been there 
since the Iraqi Kurdistan emerged as a territorial entity, and it was confirmed or it was achieved official recognition. Uh, the significance can be taught in different ways. For example, there is this political legal significance in terms of this Iraqi constitution and it's not being basically applied and the Kurds decided, okay, well, we can go by ourselves and to actually apply the Iraqi constitution or the, the promises that given to us through the Iraqi constitution. There is definitely symbolic significance in terms of the political significance that this referendum is seen as a path towards an independent Kurdish state. And as you know, Kurdish population uh, has been divided into different nation states and not having their own nation state. And in these different nation states, basically Turkey, mainly Turkey, Iran, Iraq and Syria, they have lived under these nation states during the 20th century and they went through certain cycles of sufferings and their basic rights ranging from cultural rights to economic, social and political rights been denied. And for these sufferings and lack of basic rights, Kurds mainly blamed not having their own state for these sufferings that they went through. Who called for this referendum and why now? The referendum was first mentioned in the summer of 2014. In January 2014, due to the disputes between the central Iraqi government and Kurdish regional government, KRG, the central Iraqi government, and it was under the Nuri al-Maliki at that time, they withheld funding to the Kurdish government. And in reaction to that, Kurdish government started to try to sell its oil through Turkey, independently from the Iraqi central government. And in July 2014, Iraqi Kurdish president uh, Mesut Barzani called for a referendum to be held for independence. And then in the summer of 2014, another important incident happened, which was the rise of ISIS, and Mosul fell into ISIS. After the initial shock, the both Iraqi central government and the Kurdish government tried to concentrate on fighting against ISIS and tried to push it back. And then during that concentration, or during that time, Iraqi Kurdish leadership postponed the referendum. And then I think in February 2016, the Kurdish regional government leadership again mentioned to halt the referendum for independence. But then again, I think with the involvement of the US authorities and the weaknesses in the Iraqi government's attempts to push the ISIS back, the Iraqi Kurdish leadership again decided to postpone it, and they said that they will talk about it or they will have it after Mosul is liberated. And here we are in the summer of 2017. Actually, on June 7, 2017, uh, Mesut Barzani announced that there will be a referendum to be held on September 25th. The problem there is this referendum duration or announcement was not made through the Iraqi Kurdish parliament. Hmm. Iraqi Kurdish parliament was uh, out of commission for almost two years. Right? That's true. In 2015, Mesut Barzani's uh, presidential term was expired. And there was talk about the extent his term. And then in that time, and still the main opposition party, the Goram movement, protested these talks. And in reaction, the KDP outcasted number of the Goran members from the parliament. And Goran is the, the, the movement the, for change the, party. Yeah, the change and party. And we'll get yeah. to talk about them, but briefly, what do they stand for? 
they emerge with this argument of or the critic of the corruption in the Iraqi Kurdish government and they criticize both the KDP and the PUK and KDP is the party of Mr. Uh, Barzani and yeah. his family basically yeah exactly Kurdistan Democratic Party the Mesut Barzani's party and then the Patriotic Union of Kurdistan PUK basically Jal- Jalal Talabani's party these two parties are historically the leading parties of the Iraqi Kurdish Mm-hmm. And in 1992, when the Kurdish regional government was first established, they decided they uh, shared the government equally. So they shared all posts together. They ruled the country together. There was this four or five years of civil war between the PUK and KDP, between 1994 and 1998. And then the, basically the Kurdish region was divided into two sub-regions between the KDP region, which is around the Duhok and most of Erbil, mm-hmm. versus PUK region in the east, which is mostly around the Soleimani governorate. Closer to Iranian border. Co- exactly, co- closer to the Iranian border. And then after the Iraqi war, 2003, under the, again, the U.S. sponsorship, these two parties uh, met and agreed to run the government together again. And they run the government basically from 2005 all the way to 2010-11. And in that period, with the flow of the oil money and booming economy, the level of corruption in the government also increased. And people who don't have access to these party elites and this party elites family networks alienated from this wealth. And Quran movement basically, which started as like a breaking movement from the PUK basically developed itself on this critique and criticized both KDP and PUK for corruption and managed to garner significant electoral support within a short period of time and became one of the leading opposition party in the region. So they were critical of the patronage and clientelism. For sure. And then after that again, break between the KDP leadership and the Goran in the parliament. Basically, the KDP undermined the parliament and uh, stopped the parliament to function. So essentially, just to be clear, what they did is they just didn't show up. Well, Therefore, there was no quorum, right? That's true. And also, they didn't let Goran parliamentarians to enter the city of Erbil right. so that they can show up into the parliament. The parliament building is located in city of Erbil, and they didn't let them to to enter the city and then to basically show up in the parliament. So then, because of that reason, they couldn't initially announce the referendum through the parliament. There was this meeting in the city of Salatin in June 2017 that Mesut Barzani met a number of the members of the different political parties. The different party members participated in that meeting, but what is important is that the Goran representatives didn't participate in that meeting. And at the end of that meeting, uh, Mesut Barzani declared or announced that the referendum will be held on September 25th. And Goran movement continued to criticize the way the referendum is decided on, the way it's been organized. Uh, Basically, the criticism is that the decision to hold the referendum was not taken democratically and the parliament is not running. So we cannot talk about a basic democratic atmosphere to have a voting and election. Up until very recently, the referendum decision or the referendum was not declared to the parliament. But on September 15th, yes, they actually 
reopen the parliament and to run through the parliament. And Just the, for one, one day. Exactly, one day to declare for the, <laughs> the call for the referendum. That actually the Masoud Barzani also managed to make the Goran agree on the referendum to be held. Goran finally conceded. They did. They didn't have any other choice. That was actually a success of uh, Masoud Barzani. But they didn't take any political institutional approach or vote regarding the referendum. So they just let people support their supporters free to vote whatever they want. I said Iraqi parliament. I should have said the Kurdish parliament. Well, Iraqi Kurdish parliament. Yes. The Kurdish parliament in Iraqi Kurdistan was out of commission for two years, basically. And the critics of Mr. Barzani also argue that it wasn't just the parliament that was not in session. But also they argue that Mr. Barzani himself had unlawfully extended his presidency since 2013. Uh, 2015, yeah. 2000, well, yes. 2013, I think he extended for two years and again for another two years. So the second extension is considered unlawful by his critics. Yeah, and in August 2016, he declared that he would not run for the presidency again. And they also decided as part of this agreement to win the support of the other Kurdish parties for the referendum, part of that agreement, he also decided to call for the general elections in this coming November. So we're supposed to have elections in November. So the critics argue that these political leaders who are pushing for this referendum, ostensibly Mr. Barazani, Mm -hmm. lacked the mandate for doing it, right? I mean, that's what they argue. And Based on what you're telling me, this decision was sort of pushed through undemocratically. And I can add one thing to that. And one thing that Barzani did it so confidently is the fact that he knew that the referendum would be voted popularly and people would uh, majorly for the independence. And one example is the 2005 informal referendum. And back in that time, the KRG leadership, including Mesut Barzani, didn't endorse or support that referendum. It was held informally, unofficially, but they knew that there is that call and they knew that the Kurdish history and this is a huge symbolic meaning for Kurds to have their own nation state, have their own independence. So he sort of made the calculation that none of any Kurdish political party could stand against it. Sure. And he framed that way. He certainly is a clever man when it comes to political maneuvering. Just to make sure that we have some sort of historical context here. Numbering over 35 million, Kurds are being described as the largest ethnic group in the world without a country. They're split between Iraq, Syria, Iran, and Turkey. And with large numbers in diaspora around the globe. So looking at this historical context, There was the 1916 Asia Minor Agreement, which is also known as the Skypes-Pico Agreement between the French and the British. Then we had the treaties of Sevres and Lausanne, Mm -hmm. uh, Lausanne in 1923, which essentially omitted any reference to a Kurdish homeland. Can you briefly talk about those agreements and this historical context? Also, what was the treatment of Kurds? You mentioned it briefly. What was it like in Iraq to be a Kurd? Particularly, how was the central government treating the Kurds that it caused the grievances that we witness today? I think, yeah, the, as I said, during the, uh, most of the 20th century, the Kurds lived under different nation states. What we call Kurdistan is like a geography, homeland of Kurds. What we call Kurdistan, the homeland of Kurds, 
historically been divided between the two empires, Ottoman Empire and Iranian Safavid Empire. But these empires, as we say, they're empires. The Kurds live in these countries. But these empires, being empires, not nation states, they don't necessarily care much about the linguistic or ethnic identities of their subjects. So Kurds lived under these empires uh, without having an ethnic or linguistic-based discrimination. But with the 20th century... And the emergence of the modern nation-states. Yeah, with the 20th century emergence of the modern nation-state and its arrival in the region, we see the Kurdistan further divided into small nation-states, particularly it's through the dissolution of the Ottoman Empire. And basically, the Ottoman Kurdistan was divided into smaller nation-states, the Republic of Turkey, Syria, Iraq. And then the Iranian Kurdistan also evolved into part of this Iranian nation-state. And then with all these modern nation-states paradigm, the ethnic or linguistic-based discrimination emerged. And Kurds definitely suffered significantly from this type of discriminations. In Syria and Iraq, the dominant ethnic identity is the Arab identity. In Turkey, the dominant ethnic identity is Turkish identity. In Iran, the dominant ethnic identity is the Persian identity. Although Kurds also, linguistically and historically, they're much closer to Persians compared to the Turks and Arabs. Fair so, enough. Yeah. yeah. In each nation state, then the Kurds live through these different types of discriminations, different types of rights being denied to them. For example, in Turkey, they've been completely denied. They deny their existence as yeah. a separate entity. Or yeah, until very recently. I even the word Kurt, using the word Kurt, can create some Severe uh, consequences. Cr- criminal consequences for you. And in Iraq and in Syria, they've been also mostly denied. And for most of the part, uh, most of the Kurdish population didn't have their own citizenship rights. The situation is a little different in Iran and in Iraq. In Iran, there was this Kurdistan province. And they call it Kurdistan. And they call it Kurdistan. So you could use the word <laughs> Kurt. Again, that's maybe because <laughs> historically it's also closer to Persians. But again, the Kurdish population is also much bigger or they're living other areas than the Kurdistan region. And they don't have any political representation or a distinct political representation there. In Iraq, Kurdish political rights have been denied initially. But from the very beginning, the Kurds in Iraq have been organized and rebelled against the Iraqi government. And they kept their political organization, and they've been resilient towards the most of the 20th century. And they have achieved some regional autonomy, even under the Ba'ath era. For example, today the Iraqi Kurdish parliament building was actually built by Iraqi central government in Erbil, and the Kurdistan autonomy was recognized in 1970. Mm-hmm. But then later it was the night, and then there was this fight between the Iraqi Kurds and the Iraqi central government continued. I mean, in Turkey, there have been also an armed resistance. We can talk about that. And armed rebellions in the 20s and 30s, but they failed. And then we wait until 1980s. We see another... A major breakout a of major, confrontation, yeah, and, a confrontation and, yeah, between exactly. the PKK. PKK and the Turkish state. Yes. But in Iraq, compared... Um, if you look at all these different Kurdistans or the mm-hmm. Kurdish regions, Iraqi Kurdistan, Iranian Kurdistan, Syrian Kurdistan, and Turkish Kurdistan, Iraqi Kurdistan achieved the most in terms of the political representation, in terms of the political economic rights. And their achievement been also increased since 1990s with the first emergence of the de facto autonomy 
and then the legalization of that autonomy in 2005. And right now, uh, today, we see this referendum for independence. I think it's important to mention that from the Treaty of Serb to Lausanne, an important change, which is the basically when you look at the Serb Treaty and Lausanne Treaty, they're mostly the same. Serb is in 1920 and Lausanne is 1923. What happened from 1920 to 1923 that we have another agreement, right? The thing is, the Serb Treaty was imposed on the Ottoman Empire as part of the resolution uh, deal at the end of the World War One. The Parliament of Turkey, which was established and organized in 1920, and it was organized by different people, but Mustafa Kemal definitely took the lead later on, rised against that agreement, and they basically organized an armed resistance against the Greek occupation in Western Anatolia, and they forced the European states with the Greece to renegotiate the resolution conditions and they come up with the Lausanne Treaty and instead of the Serb Treaty. The difference between these two treaties, most of the text is the same, except one major section, which is about the territorial integrity of the Turkish Republic. In the Serb Treaty, there was a much smaller Turkish Republic and there was also a space for Armenian Republic and Kurdish Republic. And mostly the eastern Turkey, eastern Anatolia was divided into Armenia and Kurdistan. Of course, the western Anatolia was left for the Greeks. But then with this armed resistance organized and basically mainly pushed the Greek occupation back in western Anatolia, the Turkish Republic managed to get the Lausanne Treaty, which is like the founding treaty of Turkish Republic. And in that treaty, they also got rid of the Armenian state and the Kurdish state. So the Armenia and Kurdistan also disappeared alongside the Greek part in Western Anatolia. The difference between the 1920 and 93 is basically that. And in Syria and in Iraq, there was no any Kurdish state expected as well. But again, Iraqi Kurds managed to get organized and they managed to sort of continue their armed resistance towards the most of the 20th century. And it's also important to mention, I think, at different stages of the Iraqi history, the Kurdish political leadership and the central Iraqi leadership had also coalitions against their opponents. So, for example, after the revolution in Iraq, 1958, mm-hmm. we see that the Barzani, or the Mesut Barzani's father, the Mullah Mustafa Barzani, is invited back to Iraq and he supported the new government, against which he would also rebel eight years later. So we see that in the central Iraqi government in Baghdad, the Kurds have always been part of the political game or the political play in central Baghdad, and they change also their coalitions vis-a-vis other actors. Hmm. So I think it's important to keep in mind to think about what will happen after this referendum, which we can discuss in a bit. You know, interesting how these connections across the nation-state borders Hmm. are. In 1946, when the yeah. Kurds established the Republic of Mahabad yeah. in the western part of Iran, in the Iranian Kurdistan, if I'm not mistaken, Mr. Barazani's father was involved yeah. in that. So yeah, I mean, Mela Mustafa, he supported yes. the Mahabad Kurdish Republic, and he left Mahabad slightly before the Iranian army advanced there. And right. there was this sort of legendary, and he became a legend that he escaped in front of the Iranian army. He to was the a Soviets. fighter, supposedly. Yeah, I mean, he and his some thousands of Peshmergas. Entourage, yes. Yeah. 
So that's uh, interesting how this connection is. Yeah, and as far as I know, if I'm not wrong, Masoud Barzani was born in Mahabat. That's right. During Mala Mustafa was there. And yes. during this referendum campaign, there's also another political discourse. He kept saying that, oh, I was born in a free Kurdistan, like Mahabat Kurdish Republic, and mm. I would like to die in a free Kurdistan. Right. Oh, he was saying that. He was saying that as the campaign, yeah. You mentioned how the Iraqi Kurds have been faring under these repressive regimes, Mm -hmm. you know, in Iraq. There are people who argue that Mr. Barzani should have accepted a UN-backed plan to postpone the referendum in favor of negotiations with Iraq's central government. They're criticizing him for holding the referendum at this juncture. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think the big question right now is, yeah, we have the referendum. And we all knew that it would uh, majorly voted for independence, and it happened. What will happen next? What kind of negotiations? And right now, the Iraqi Kurdish leadership is supposed to have negotiations with the central Iraqi government and to negotiate the ways of the Kurdistan region getting independence. And we should also keep in mind that one of the arguments of the Iraqi Kurdish leadership to halt the referendum is that the Iraqi central government is unable to fulfill it is constitutional responsibilities. And right now we don't know if the Iraqi government, the central Iraqi government, would agree genuinely that the Kurdistan region should be an independent state with what kind of a state capacity the Iraqi government would fulfill the responsibilities and the certain measures or aspirations to make it happen. So basically the opposition in Iraqi Kurdistan raised the point that we need some sort of an supervision and some sort of an external guarantee for these talks to have these talks to have actually produced real, actual consequences. And in that sense, UN appeared as the most natural power broker or mediator, yes. or mediator there instead of any regional power or mm. global power which would most probably, through the UN, they would also have some influence, but at least through the UN, it would make it much more accountable and effective. Or at least that's the hope. And that's Dr. Firat Boschali speaking with Shahram Agamir about the September 25th referendum in Iraqi Kurdistan when people voted overwhelmingly in favor of independence for the Kurdistan region. We'll hear more after a short break. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. It's sort of astonishing. How can courts even trust these foreign powers, yeah. exogenous forces, after what they have yeah. gone through? We see this with Palestinians too. The political leadership of Palestinians or Kurds, every so often they create these alliances out of expediency. Yeah. I mean, let's say the Kurds in Iraq did it with the Shah of Iran, right? In 1960s and 70s. And when the Shah of Iran, exactly, when the Shah of Iran settled some sort of an agreement with the Iraqi regime, then Kurds became the sacrificed lamb, right? Sure. On and on, you see, they put their faith in this or that power, and then, or the U.S. for that matter, right? They may get betrayed. How does that play into the psyche of 
Kurds. We can understand it through this. Towards the most of the 20th century, there was this, what Kurds call it, the Sadabat regime. Sadabat regime or the Sadabat system, basically named after the Sadabat Treaty, signed in 1937 in Tehran, which lasted for five years, not long. But basically the idea is that and the Sadaba Treaty is basically a non-aggression treaty signed by Iran, Turkey, Iraq, and Syria. And the idea with this system that, okay, Kurds, we live under these nation states. At the end of the day, they would support each other against any Kurdish advance or any Kurdish achievement. They might support each other Kurds against each other, but to an extent. At the end of the day, they would always support or they would always prefer the central governments versus the Kurds. So then... It's the ruling bloc. Yes, it's the ruling bloc. And it is the case, right? Again, it's the example with the Shah and Iran. We can also come up with other examples too. As long as we have these centers there, it is difficult for Kurds to get any support from any of these regional countries because they have their own Kurdish population. So for the sake of keeping their own Kurdish population, their Kurdish population under control, they would always side with the central governments. Turkey always side with the central Iraqi government or Syrian government when it comes to the Kurds, and we sort of see that. So that's the way the Kurdish political intelligentsia depict the situation. And they say that, well, if we find a global power which does not need to uh, betray to Kurds at the end of the day, maybe they would continue to support Kurds, right? Because they're not part of the Sadabat system. So that's partially the logic. But the problem is that Kurdistan is the colony of a colony. The global powers, at the end of the day, can also go with this strong regional states. But I think this system is changing. This system has been changed since 1990s. Now we don't see the strong centers in Iraq or in Syria anymore. So I think Kurds or Kurdish political leadership can come up with other strategies. And again, instead of relying on a global power, now they can also make regional powers compete to gain their support. And that's what they're counting on, clearly. I think so. I think right now the Iraqi Kurdish leadership's strategy is, I don't think that the Iraqi Kurdish leadership think that US or Russia or any other global power would come and support them or let it happen. They would definitely count on their support. But they know that to succeed their independence or to succeed to further establish their rule, they would need to gain support of one of the regional powers. And they do think that these regional powers could not afford leaving, not picking up, helping the Kurds at the expense of letting the other regional power picking up that alternative. It becomes a balancing act. I think so. Dr. Mossadegh in Iran used to call it negative equilibrium. Essentially, you don't give concessions to either one of these powers but you just keep that balancing act, you know, keep doing that balancing yeah. act. So let me ask you something, Farad. I would like to get into the role of regional powers leading up to this referendum and in the aftermath of this election. But before we go there, when we look at the conditions prior to this election, the post-2003 U.S. invasion of Iraq, oil-rich Iraqi Kurdistan underwent an economic boom, drawing in international investors, uh, there was massive construction and tourism was thriving for some years, for several yeah. years. But for the past few years, Iraqi Kurdistan has been experiencing rapidly increasing food prices and power cuts. Kurdish regional government, KRG, has failed to pay the salaries of the almost 1.4 million public sector workers. 
the sales have been cut by up to uh, 75%. And KRG is now up to $30 billion in debt by mm. some estimates. And this is for a population of 5 million. <laughs> That's, That's quite a bit. These economic conditions have led to mass social unrest and demonstrations. How did we get here in terms of the economy? What are the causes of this economic crisis? Do you think the decision to hold this referendum might have been driven by the economic crisis and the ensuing social discontent? Sure, yeah, definitely. I think one way to answer or think about that option or that question is with what argument Iraqi Kurdish leadership call for this referendum, especially regarding to the Iraqi politics or the local politics. The argument for the referendum is that, look, we were doing great, but we are now failing because the Iraqi central government is failing. They are not giving us our they're, share of the... Yeah, number one is they're not giving us the funding that we are entitled to get. It's also our constitutional right to get 17% of the oil revenues to the Iraqi Kurdistan. But correct me if I'm mistaken, they have also signed contracts with the oil companies independently of... Yeah, that's the solution that we find to right. bypass that. But in, they said that the initial blame is with the Iraqi central government right. that they withheld our share. So that's number one. Number two... The central Iraqi government is so non-functioning that it couldn't really protect the Iraqi territory that we saw fall of Mosul overnight. And it was the central Iraqi government's responsibility to protect the city of Mosul, but they lost it overnight. And that created a stability to the Iraqi Kurdistan region. I mean, all these people forced to leave the Mosul and they had this flow of the refugees In, into, the Iraqi into the Iraqi Kurdistan from other parts of Iraq. And they said that we had also this financial uh, burden, burden yes. because of that. The Iraqi Kurdish uh, leadership's argument is that, look, Iraq is not functioning. We are functioning, but because of that, they are functioning so badly, we're also failing. That's the how, actually, the Iraqi Kurdish leadership sees it and how legitimize the referendum. The problem in this argument, which is true, I mean, the Iraqi Kurdistan region have difficulties or hardships due to the non-functioning Iraqi central government. But this argument by itself hides the corruption and the waste of resources at the hand of the Iraqi Kurdish leadership. That's actually how the Iraqi Kurdish opposition responds to Iraqi Kurdish leadership, basically Mesut Barzani and his political party, saying that, look, you have wasted all these resources and uh, these resources that we have through the oil economy and we became like a typical rentier state, which is like mostly corrupted and patronage and clientelistic relations developed. And most of the people excluded from this wealth that you generate by using our people's resources. And 1.4 million people in the public sector, that that yeah, almost looks like a handout structure. Yeah, I mean, in 2007-9, they were like giving wages to the families. They employ people in different public sectors. And yeah, 1.4 million, it is definitely, yeah, it's like inflated. Yeah, I mean, if you think about, it's a young population, right? Yeah. And then 5.3 million total of people living there. 1.4 million people work in the public sector. Well, the state itself becomes the main actor and distributor of the wealth in the region. And it may not be a problem in itself, but the problem really appears when the access to the state sources also depends on your connection with the political elite. Maybe 1.4 million officers or 1.4 million people live on the state wages. 
And some of them evidently were phantom employees. In other words, they were double dipping. They were collecting salaries on two yeah, jobs. Yeah, that's, that's the case. And they realized that they actually created a big problem, especially the security problem with the ISIS crisis, because they realized that the number of Peshmergas didn't exist. They like as the phantom yes. Peshmergas that they receive wages, but they were not there or they Do, are doing other things. Does it look like they have problems paying their Peshmergas? Yeah, the the Kurdish fighters. They have wages. So that yeah. could be... Uh, the, yeah, definitely. It's a big thing. That, that's a menace to their yeah. rule. Let's talk about the Kurdish issue in a broader context yeah. beyond Iraq, as you Kur- mentioned. Kurdistan at large. Exactly. So it's clear that these political parties or political organizations across these borders in different states, they do not agree on a lot of points. In fact, in the mid-90s, the Iraqi Kurdistan Democratic Party, Barzani's KDP, was fighting PKK, Kurdistan Workers' Party in Turkey. In those days, the Iraqi Kurdistan Democratic Party even allowed the Turkish military to occupy positions on the Iraqi side of the border in order to quell and PKK. And Turkish army still keep most of those positions. You have this situation that you have all these different yeah. discourses you know, in Kurdistan yeah. beyond Iraqi Kurdistan. How are these differences going to play out? In this vision of a yeah. Kurdish nation and a state. Well, right now, in the Kurdish political sphere and Kurdistan at large, we see two leading paradigms, which are in competition with each other and also in huge disagreement. At the one side, we have more like a traditional nation state, more like a central right, politically central right perspective to achieve a Kurdish nation state in different contexts, which is sort of represented mainly by the Mesut Barzani and his political party, KDP. And at the other side, we have this vision that denies achieving a nation state, instead organizing Kurdistan into the local autonomies and connecting these autonomous regions through a confederal system without necessarily changing the national borders. And this perspective is mainly endorsed or represented by the PKK or the Öcalan, the imprisoned leader of PKK, Abdul Öcalan. So we have this sort of KDP versus more like a central right and more traditional nation-state-based political vision versus more like a this autonomous leftist inspired from more like an anarchistic ideas, Öcalan uh, or PKK. And PYD in Syria is also yeah, part of a, a model of self-autonomy and democratic co-federalism, right? Yeah. They are not emphasizing this idea of a separation as a state. Or achieving a nation achieving state. Achieving a state. That's yeah, definitely. I'm Actually, right now with this PYD in Syria and this, again, de facto Kurdish region emerging there, and Iraqi Kurdistan region and the Iraqi Kurdistan regional government, we also see these two paradigms having their own showcase or their own concrete examples to showcase their political vision. And I think there are both hardships and difficulties and complications involved in each case, but definitely we can see these two paradigms in competition with each other. And I think... We can talk about what they agree on and what they disagree on generally. I think what they agree on is Kurdish self-determination. They both agree on that, yeah, Kurds should decide on their own political future. 
And it's not just Kurds. Everyone should, every different, all of the different groups should decide on their own political future. So they agree on sovereignty. But they don't agree on how this sovereignty can be realized, can be achieved. And beyond that, too. Of course. And next questions come with that, right? Right. I think that's important because it is very actually easy to converge these two things into one. The principle of supporting that the Kurds would decide on their political future, will have their own sovereignty, and how this sovereignty will be performed or realized. And in that sense, the support for the referendum, the support for independence in the referendum, as in it is the referendum form, cannot necessarily speak to the second question that well. It speaks mostly to the first question that the referendum basically brings the question to Kurtz that, do you want to decide on your political future or not? And of course they say that, yeah, we would like to decide on our political future. But this referendum, the referendum of independence, do not necessarily engage in these discussions of how you would like to perform this right or this self-determination. And there we see more complications and, and things. Completely different strategies. Definitely. And in terms of the more concrete parts of the differences, yeah, definitely. On the one hand, we have much more like a traditional nation-state form, which is very open to the corruption and patronage, uh, clientelistic relations. At the same time, very open to the being integrated with the global capitalist system to get all these external funds and create sort of this booming economy basically based on these rentier uh, revenues. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, we have this political projection which is based on local production and consumption cooperatives, much more resistant and resilient against the global capitalist system. And I think when we think about these two systems, the first system, more like a traditional nation-state-like system, we see actual examples of that, and it is not that difficult to reproduce it. Uh, but it has many problems in terms of the creating inequalities, corruption, and, uh, and other things. I mean, let's look at South Sudan or Eritrea, yeah. you know, these are the recent yeah. examples. Yeah. Of- but when we come to the other political projection, another paradigm, uh, we don't know what extent that ideals and that projection would actually act on the ground. And especially when we think about in that, I'm talking about the Syrian Kurdistan, the Rojava example, especially under the current threat to the territorial integrity of the region, Syrian Kurdistan. We might see that the Syrian Kurdish leadership can compromise on some of their ideals and political projections in exchange of a piece of security, territorial integrity, especially from the threatening neighbors. Speaking of threatening neighbors, let's delve into that. What has been the reaction? Let's start with the Iraqi regime. How did the Iraqi government respond? I know there were quite a bit of a saber rattling before the referendum. What has been the response? Yeah, the Iraqi government harshly responded to the referendum and then the, its results. I think this reaction can be also understood in two sections. One is the reactions or the measures targeting the Kurdistan region, and the other one the reaction and the measures targeting the uh, disputed areas or what Kurds call Kurdistani areas. And as I earlier mentioned, these areas, I mean 
the areas which have significant Kurdish populations, not necessarily majority, but significant Kurdish population, and which also happen to exist outside of the current Kurdistan region, and most prominently Kirkuk, because of its rich oil fields. Sure. So for the Kurdistan region, the first reaction is the central government asked Kurdistan region to withdraw from the border gates and also the control of the international air trafficking to the Iraqis central government back. They asked for control to be handed over to yeah, the Iraqis. They, they asked to the, uh, hand over the international air traffic to back to the central Iraqi government. And based on that decision, actually few regional states or regional airlines declared that they will stop their service because basically their right to land in and take off taken away or revoked by the central government, which is happening. But I'm not sure about uh, taking the control of the border gates. As long as the border gates are not blocked by the neighboring states, it is realistically more challenging for central Iraqi government to send its own customs officers and border security, border patrols to replace the Kurdish customs and uh, border security officers. When it comes to the reactions and measures against the regions outside of Kurdistan region, particularly Kirkuk, they sacked the current governor of Kirkuk, and they also planning to sack the whole the city parliament and call for new city parliament in elections Kirkuk, yeah. in Kirkuk. And Iraqi Prime Minister has said that they were in no mood to negotiate. Where do you think this is going? Well, I think Iraqi Kurdistan and the the Kurdistani areas will face some further pressure, uh, but at some point with some external brokerage, either from the regional powers or more global powers, I think they would come to a negotiation table and they started to negotiate and compensate on certain things. And this way, the negotiations will actually start happening. Because when we think about the Iraq, I mean, I already mentioned the Iraqi Kurdish leadership's argument for leaving, exiting from Iraq and becoming an independent state. But for Iraq, uh, losing the Kurdistan is also important. I mean, definitely Kirkuk with its oil and gas fields is a very valuable piece of land. But even without Kirkuk, if the current Kurdistan region decides to live in itself as it is right now, it would also be a significant loss for Iraqi uh, government or the Iraq because it is the most stable and functioning part of Iraq. Dr. Firat Bozjali is an anthropologist who has done extensive research about the political economy and geography of state formation in the Turkish border zones. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. Please tune in next week for the second part of this interview.
Flames is a new opera by creator and writer Nilufar Talebi, composer Alexandra Reblov, and director Roy Rollo. The opera is inspired by the iconic Iranian poet Ahmad Shamlu's Trials by Fire and The Tree of Life and is written for the Young Women's Choral Projects of San Francisco with soloists including Merola Opera Program Singers and musical ensemble featuring the Living Earth Show. Here is Nilufare Talebi talking about this inspiring performance. Are you going to be yourself or not? Trials by fire or not? Against all odds, are you going to be yourself or not? The story of Abraham in Flames that I wrote uh, with my collaborators, composer Alexander Vrebalov and director Roy Rallo, is an original parable inspired by the presence of the great poet Ahmad Shamlu in my life, this incredible big question that my father asked me when I was very young, paintings of the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus is after the Last Supper and he's praying on the Mount of Olives. To me, it's the final declaration of commitment, which is something that Ahmad Shamlu also declared. He really declared his own commitment with a capital C to his calling. The young woman's chorus, uh, that this opera is written for, they are the main character of the opera. I think that uh, exchange of roles and uh, going beyond our physical appearance and gender uh, is something that can uh, especially be uh, valid and um, bring out the, the qualities that that we are dealing with in, in the opera, that, that we are bringing forth. The, the beautiful idea that Nilufar had that we have a, the girls' chorus as the main character was uh, something that I was immediately drawn to. The next step in our process will be all of us confronting the score and having individual reactions to the score um, and seeing what uh, Alexandra's finding what kind of score this is, I will be finding what kind of staging will respond to the score. There's a lot of interplay between um, the internal sense of knowing, you know, knowing yourself, knowing what really moves you, knowing who you are, to your bone, and the interaction between that knowing and the quest for happiness, um, as well as the quest for really living an authentic life and living exactly as you are, which is usually in contrast with the voices of fear and the voices of doubt. The opera is really about what do these big questions 
what impact they have on our lives and how they steer our lives and shape our lives. See workshop performances of this lush opera at the Wilsey Center for Opera in San Francisco on October 3rd and 4th at 7.30 p.m. You can get tickets through brown paper tickets and for additional information, please visit vomina.org. And that's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley. To get in touch, you can call us at 510-848-6767, extension 632, email vomekpfa at yahoo.com, connect with us on our Facebook at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa, or follow us on Vomina Radio. Please join us next time for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. Thank you.